0: Let's now turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 962 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, and even though our focus will be upon 54b and verse 55... We will take into consideration the entire context, beginning in verse 50, as well as many other passages in God's Word this morning. Let's bow together before reading this portion of God's Word. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, and we praise and thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the Son, assumed human nature, and went to a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of sinners like us, and rose from the dead on the third day. And we ask that, as we see such tremendous decline in our country, such little true preaching of the Word, such little true faith, that you will bless that true preaching where it does happen in many places this morning. And we would ask humbly that your spirit would so attend it that this might be the day, oh how we pray for it, that you would begin to turn us back. And we pray, Lord, that many a lost person will come to know Jesus, for all of us apart from Christ are lost and undone. And that your Holy Spirit would convince many a heart of the truth as it is in Christ, that Men and women and children will come to see their need of Jesus, just as you have shown your people now who worship (laughs) your name in this place. May the Spirit of God who has given to us this word by divine inspiration now bless it to our hearts that we may understand it, that it may transform our lives, that it will make us to be true worshipers of the Lamb that was slain, but who now, (laughs) raised from the dead, is coming again someday for His people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 50. This is the Word of God, and what a joyful Word it is. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Over these past days, as we looked at Psalm 22 last Sunday and at Gethsemane on Good Friday, we have seen that our Savior took our sin and walked into the flaming furnace of the wrath of God in order to free us from our trespasses. And then, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. The Father exerted his sovereign power and raised his Son from the dead. And the air indeed is filled with hope because of this great thing that God has done for sinners through his Son. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the very crown of salvation, 1 Corinthians 15 is the crowning chapter of the Bible on the theme of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the crown of the crown of this chapter is found in verses 54 and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, before we actually move into the various points we want to see, let's together notice some detail about these verses. First of all, don't you find it arresting that he uses the metaphor to swallow up death? That's a great metaphor. Think about it. You go home, you swallow your lunch, you take it down. You swallow up, you swallow up, you take it down. It's done for, you see. That ham will never be the same again. (laughs) Well, our Lord Jesus Christ has swallowed up. He has swallowed down death. Katipathe, drink down, swallow down. And the writer, the Apostle Paul, is quoting from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 He will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever. But now he puts it into the passive voice. That's not so clear here in the translation I've read. But death no longer holds sway in victory, and literally it should be translated, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. He has taken it right down. Death is done for. And the Apostle Paul also cites another passage. He quotes from Hosea chapter 13, O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And He cites that here in verses 54 and 55, this passage from Hosea. Now the Apostle Paul would have been reading in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that would have been the version he used, just as we have an ESV in our hands. And he changes Hades that would be found there to death. He wants to make it plain, Christ is the victor over death. And when he does make that change from Hades to death and says to us, "O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting?" He uses the vocative. That is to say, it's direct address. He is addressing death as if death were personified, and he says, "O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting?" Paul looks at the time of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the last day, and he has the courage to think, on that last day, I will stare death in the face, and I can now announce that Christ has won the victory over death, and that we have the victory over death in Him. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he speaks to death, personified, imagining that day in which Christ comes again, that day of judgment, and on that day, the apostle says, I'm able to face death without fear. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I wonder if you can do that from your heart. The resurrection of Jesus, then, has freed believers from death. And this, indeed, is an astounding claim, isn't it? That the resurrection of Jesus has freed believers from death. But that's what Paul the Apostle is teaching here and throughout this chapter and the Bible as a whole teaches us. Death, where did death come from, anyway? It is the result of the breaking of God's law. That's why he says that the power of sin is the law. In all of its spirituality, what keeps death, what gives it its strength, its power over us is this broken law of God. And this happened when the first man and head of the human race fell into sin. Now look back at verses 21 through 23 of this chapter and you'll see that Paul says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so he makes it plain that there are the alls, there is the all in the first Adam, the all who are in the last Adam, and that the human race fell into sin, and death came into the world. When Adam broke God's law in the garden, death came into the world through Adam's disobedience, and to use the language of the old New England primer, in Adam's fall we sinned all. All of us are sinners because Adam fell in his first transgression. Now that's what the Bible teaches. But I think we need to ask a question What is death anyway? You say, well, pastor, of course, we all know what death is. The heart ceases to beat. The blood ceases to flow. The lungs cease to take in breath, to inhale and to exhale. Well, yes, indeed, that is death. But part of our task in understanding this passage this morning is to have a thorough going biblical understanding of what the Bible means when it speaks of death. If the Apostle Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and in four four places within these short verses speaks of death. Then in order to understand the victory of Christ over death, we need to understand what death is all about. If we are to understand that the risen Christ has freed us from death, we need to begin then by answering the question, what is death? Now, maybe you didn't expect that on Easter Sunday morning, but you really will not appreciate the resurrection of Jesus and what this means for you until you have a real understanding and answer to this question, what is death? Now, we've seen that's the first point, what is death, that it came through Adam in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, he said. Adam sinned. The whole human race fell in him in him, and sinned with him in his first transgression. And so you will die, Adam. You'll die when you disobey. All right, then, what does that mean? Does it just mean the cessation of the heartbeat? No, it doesn't. It means many things. Death must be looked at from a variety of angles. First of all, death means judicial death. There was Adam in his pristine state, a worshiper of God. He fellowshiped with God, but when he sinned, his transgression broke fellowship with God. The wrath of God then was upon him and upon the human race, so that everyone who is born after Adam is born in sin. Judicial death, condemnation, wrath. To use the word that all of us will understand, it's guilt. We are all born with guilt into this world and thereby we have incurred the just wrath of Almighty God who is completely holy in all of his ways. What is death? Oh, my friend, that's death, isn't it? To know the judicial wrath and anger of God against sin. But then secondly, of course, there is the death of the body. Where does the death of the body come from? The death of the body, the corruption of the body, its return into dust is not natural. I know that our world today says this is just nature's cycle, but it's not natural. The Bible makes it plain that we die because of the sin of Adam. Death came into the world because of his first transgression. Paul makes that plain. In Genesis chapter 5, I'm sure that many of you have noticed, but perhaps some of you have not, that after we have the creation of Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, the fall of Adam and the human race in Genesis chapter 3, we have the birth of Cain and Abel in chapter 4, then we have a list of Adam's descendants in chapter 5. And here's the refrain that we read as we move through the fifth chapter in Genesis. In verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. In verse 8, Seth, and he died. In verse 11, Enosh, and he died. In verse 14, Kenan, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. Verse 27, and he died. Verse 31, and he died. So the text is making very plain to us that because of the fall of Adam, death has entered into the world. The corruption of the body, it's returned to dust. That is what death means, but that's not all. Not only is there judicial condemnation, not only is there the corruption of the body that goes back to the dust, the death of the body, but there also is the death of the soul because of Adam's sin. The corruption of our nature and depravity due to sin. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The death of the soul before God. And that includes, according to Scripture, the death of our understanding. That is to say, our presuppositions are all wrong. There is a bias that sin has brought into the soul. So that to use Calvin's language, our souls are now idol factories. They just produce. Imagine a factory that's just stamping out, idol after idol after idol. That's the understanding of man because of the fall of Adam into sin. Darkness, the carnal mind is enmity to God, says Paul, darkness of the understanding. But it also means that our wills are darkened. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man cannot understand, cannot perceive the things of the Spirit of God because these things are spiritually discerned. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Colossians 121 says you are enemies of God in your mind. No wonder Thomas Boston, that great old Scottish divine, spoke of the Dead Sea of Self. The Dead Sea of Self. But not only the understanding the will, but also the affections are estranged from God. You know what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him." Uh, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That's the human heart apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our affections are now darkened. Perhaps some of you heard the news report of uh, two young men, 10 and 11 years old, uh, who determined that they were going to murder their classmate. Uh, It was on the news just yesterday. Uh, Fifth graders, where does this come from? You say, well, these boys are just particularly wicked. Well, this is what the human heart is capable of, apart from grace. My heart, your heart, apart from grace, is capable of any sin. The conscience is defiled because of sin. So there's the death of the soul. Now let's add to that, because a great part of death is fear. Living in fear of eternal judgment, and all of us know that a judgment is coming. It's written on the heart. It's written on the human heart. That's what your conscience is all about. Your conscience is actually saying to you, a day of judgment is yet to come. Turn to John chapter 5, of course, keeping your finger here in 1 Corinthians. And in John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus is speaking of the general resurrection that is yet to come. And he says in verses 25 and following, John 5, 25, "...truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself." And He has given Him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Then Jesus says, in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As one of the old divines says, The wicked shall be dragged forth like so many malefactors out of a dungeon to be led to execution. Christ is coming again, and when he comes again, he will come in judgment. We've confessed it to judge the quick and the dead. And all through the world, the judgment will be heard. This judgment, this trumpet that will be blown, this trumpet that will raise the dead, that will be here be heard on the tops of mountains and way down in the depths of the sea. And the scattered dust will come together and every soul will be reunited with its body as the trumpet says, come, come, come out of your graves and come to the final sentence on this last day of judgment. And of that we read in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20. If you'll turn there. And we hear these truly sober words as we read, beginning in verse 11 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. the lake of fire. So with this apocalyptic symbolic language, yet behind it this awesome reality of the judgment that is coming on the last day. Now, we've been asking the question, what is death? All of this is death. All of this is death. Sin must be punished. God is holy. Sin must be punished. Death is not natural. Death is the result of the fall of man And death is real. We all know that death is real. And death is certain. Unless Christ comes again first, every one of us will die. And it's unavoidable. There's nothing you can do unless Christ comes again first. There's nothing that you can do to avoid death. I've been over many a deathbed. I've not yet seen one person who could avoid it. Because it is appointed once for man to die, and after this the judgment, says the scripture. And in Luke chapter 12, that rich man is called by Christ a fool. He says, thou fool, this night thy soul will be required of thee. He is called a fool because he does not plan for death. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, when the Apostle Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. This is what he means by death. And we can't appreciate the victory of Christ over death until we understand this. And so in verse 56, the sting of death is sin. It's like some animal with a poison stinger. Now, the sting of death is sin. If something can be done about sin, you know, if something can be done about sin, something can be done about the sting, right? If I could just do something about sin, but I can't. If you could, but can you? Can you? But if something could be done about this, Sting, and death stings. Let me tell you, death stings. Ask any family that has lost a child in death. Does death sting? Widows who are there alone, their spouses having gone before them, does death sting? Pain, suffering, sorrow, stings and for some the sting is eternal but if the sin can be dealt with the sting can be removed now that's what Paul is driving at here (laughs) Paul stares death in the face and he addresses it with victory as he contemplates the last day and again I ask you the question can you do that So the question is, how? How can sin be dealt with? How can that sting be removed? We need to ask another question then, and this second question is so important. What did Christ do to remove that sting? What did Christ do to defeat death? Judicial death, condemnation, because we are fallen in Adam and because of our own sin as well. What did Christ do? He said, yes, Father, I will come. I will go into the world. I will obey the law, which is the strength of sin that your people did not obey. I will go to the cross, and there I will pay the infinite penalty. You are holy, and the penalty is infinite. I will go to the cross and because I am God, assuming human nature, my infinite nature will give to my finite suffering's infinite value so that our, our people's infinite sin can be wiped away, so that guilt now can be removed. So that as we read in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And justification means that now you are declared Right in God's court of law because your guilt is removed. What did he do to defeat death? He went to the cross and died himself. And then there was the death of his own body. Jesus died, really died, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. But his dead body did not become corrupt, and he rose on the third day. Death cannot keep its prey. What did Christ do to defeat death? He took that sting totally in his own body and soul. And then he took it into the tomb. And he rose on the third day, leaving that sting behind in the grave. The death of death in the death of Christ and in his resurrection. He rose from the dead. So, Paul begins this chapter in verses 3 and 4 saying, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Thank God that when Adam fell, when He sinned, when He fell, and the human race fell in Him, thank God. When Adam fell, he fell on Christ. So we've seen what death is. It's unavoidability. We've seen what Christ did to remove the sting of death. Now let's focus on a third question. What does this mean for believers in Jesus? What does this mean for believers in Jesus? Well, do you remember all that death meant? Were we under the condemnation and wrath of God because of Adam's fall and our own sin, because we were guilty before him? Yes, we were. But, my friend, no penalty remains. There is no wrath for anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. It has all been removed. So that Paul the Apostle says in Romans 8:1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation, not now, not in the future, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? Were we dead in our trespasses and sins? Yes, indeed. But Paul says we are now made alive in the risen Christ. Our understanding is restored, being restored, fully restored when we are with Him in glory. Our understanding is being restored. Our wills are renewed. Our affections that once hated Christ now long for Christ. Our consciences that once were defiled, indeed some seared as with a hot iron, our consciences are now cleansed by the blood of Jesus Once we were dead, now we are raised. Ephesians chapter 2, turn there in your Bibles. The Apostle Paul underscores this blessing of Easter when he says this, Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that was every believer once. Now verse 4, "...but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are raised in Jesus. Our souls are raised. All right then, we remember death. Were we under condemnation? We are so no longer who believe in Jesus were we dead in trespasses and sins, we're raised in Christ now. Well, will our bodies die? Will the believer's body die? Yes, the believer's body will die unless Jesus comes first. But that's not the end. For you see, redemption is completely accomplished in Christ, it's done, but it is yet to be applied and that final application will be the resurrection at the last day. Let's look at some verses here in chapter 15 verse 20. The apostle Paul says in 15:20, "But Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep." Now this word first fruits is an agricultural term. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were the first portion of the entirely anticipated crop that were brought to the Lord in the tabernacle or the temple. The point is, the first fruits demonstrate that the harvest has begun. It is the first part of the entirely anticipated harvest. So when Jesus is called, the first fruits of those who sleep by His resurrection from the dead. The point is that in Christ, the resurrection harvest has already begun. And that means, believer, that your resurrection on the last day is certain and secured. Because in Christ, raised from the dead, the first part of the resurrection harvest has already been harvested. Look at verses 42 through 44 in this wonderful chapter. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. You see what he's saying on the last day? The bodies of believers, now corruptible, inglorious, without power, without the complete understanding of the Holy Spirit's blessing in life, on that day we will be raised incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and Holy Spirit-possessed. Look at verses 35 through 37 of this chapter. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other grain. What's his point here? When Jesus rose from the tomb, the same body that was put into the tomb was raised by God's power from the tomb. When you die and the worms destroy your body... Yet with your eyes shall you see God. The very body that is placed in the grave will be raised, but it will be glorious. And the comparison is to the planting of a seed to the full-blown corn. You take a little shriveled up seed. You put it in the ground. It germinates. It sprouts. And then there's the full, luscious Full corn in the ear. Is it the same? Yes, there's continuity. Is it different? Yes, it's different. So that when your body is put into the ground, it is the same body that is going to be raised up, but it will be so glorious and so wondrous. You won't know me. <laughs> well, you will. But you'll say, My, you look different. David, you look so tall, you'll say. It's the acorn, you see, that becomes a full oak. Oh, what a day that will be. So will our bodies die? Yes, our bodies will die. But on the last day, the very end, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And there will be the resurrection of our bodies. Well, we also said that death was judgment. Will the judge return? Yes, the judge will return. But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may now sing, Bold shall I stand on that great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay Fully absolved from these I am, from fear, from guilt, from shame. So we read in verses 54 and 55. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So you on that day will be able to join the Apostle Paul, not only on that day, but already if you're a true believer in Christ, you may now join with Paul the Apostle. You may stare death in the face, and you may use that vocative, that direct address, and you may say, O death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death grips in fear. You tell me if it's never been true in your life that you've awakened in the middle of the night, you couldn't sleep, you felt your heart beat in your chest, and you've had the thought, what if I died? Who of us hasn't known something of the fear of death? And despite the fact that our world says when you die, that's it, you know that's not true. Eternity is written on your heart. Did death grip us in fear? Listen to Hebrews two fourteen and 15. Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came to deliver his people from the fear of death. Do we stand at the graves of believers, our friends and family? Well, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There we celebrate Easter at the graves of our believing brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep And my friend, these passages are written by the very same Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, who hated Jesus Christ, despised his church, persecuted his people, murdered believers in Jesus Christ, but on the Damascus Road was met by the risen Lord and was never the same. You explain Paul the Apostle. Did we once flounder without purpose in life? You know, the unbeliever can't tell you why he's here. I was like that. What's your purpose in life? The Apostle Paul addresses that too. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verses 12 through 19. Let's read them. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So when you come to the end of this chapter, the very last words are these. In verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain." What is Paul saying? Paul is saying the believer has a guaranteed future that is anchored in the risen Christ. And there is such a union between the believer and Christ that if the believer is not raised, Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, the believer will not been raised, be raised. But the believer will be raised because Christ has been raised. We are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, your daily labor has meaning and significance because you have a guaranteed future. In other words, the believer knows that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why you're here. So what does Christ's resurrection mean to you, believer? It means there is no condemnation, that you are alive in Christ, that your body will be raised, there will be boldness on the judgment day, that you may now live a life without the fear of death, that there is gospel comfort at graveside, that there is a purposeful life and a guaranteed future, praise be to God, thanks be to Him who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All because Christ rose on the third day according to the scripture, these things are true for you who believe in Christ. And most of all, most of all, we will know on that day when Jesus comes again, what the old theologians used to call the Amor intellectual Tatis Dei. We will know. Intellectual Tatis, intellectually, we will know in our minds, in our souls, in our affections. We will know Him. Yes, we know Him now, but we will know Him We will see him. We will love him. We will fellowship with him. We will be blessed in eternal communion with him. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Because he was raised from the dead. So these thoughts, my friend. Christian, don't minimize these truths. Don't minimize these things. The coming of Christ on the last day, based on His resurrection from the dead, is held out as our great hope. And it all is anchored in Christ's resurrection from the dead. And we live in a distressing world, an unbelieving world, a world that doesn't even understand the basics. But your hope is not in this world, it's in Christ. The application of redemption is not yet complete, and until the resurrection, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And until then, he is bringing us to that last appointment. And so, people of God, may this radiant truth move us to share the message that Christ is risen from the dead, that his bones are not bleaching under a Syrian sky, that he lives. J. Gresham Machin, that great Presbyterian intellectual of the 20s and 30s, said, the great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was an historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, He is risen. It really happened. It's history, and you must reckon with it. So from the empty tomb, the call comes to believe And if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, this really took place. He really rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't rise as a diplomat to negotiate with us. He rose as the Lord of the dead and the living, and he calls you and me to faith and repentance. And holds out this promise through his gospel minister this morning. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's his promise. Jesus was not raised from the dead to let sin go, but to call a people for himself. So this sting, verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. This sting, this power that holds us. If I can just deal with sin, then the sting and the power of death will be removed. That's what Easter is all about. That's what he did. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose from the dead. And in his resurrection Christ defeated death. The victory over death therefore will be final and complete. Can you therefore say with Paul the apostle as you look to that day, death is swallowed up in victory? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Can you say with him thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ? Can you? Can you? And if you can't, why not? Lay down the weapons of your warfare and put your trust in Christ alone, risen from the dead, who can save His people from their sins. May the Lord bless this message from His Word. Amen.